The love feast is sometimes referred to as an agape meal. Agape is the Greek word for love, and this special love feast or meal is described in the United Methodist Book of Worship as a fellowship meal that reminds us of the meals that Jesus shared with his disciples during his life and ministry. And it also reminds us of the koinonia, which is a Greek term for Christian fellowship or communion. It reminds us of that koinonia that is shared in the Christian life among the community of believers. So, I invite you to join us today on this episode of the Methodical Methodist Podcast as we explore the history and the ritual of the Love Feast. Hello and welcome to the Methodical Methodist Podcast, a podcast where we talk about why the church is still relevant for us today as we explore themes connected to religion, politics, pop culture, faith, and yes, even the church. Together, we can find out what it means to live into the mission of the church by making disciples. Now, let's get methodical. Hello, everyone. I am your host, the Reverend Andrew Lay, and I am excited to spend this time on the podcast today. If you like the show, hope that you might take a minute to subscribe, rate, and write a review for the podcast. It helps to boost the show and make it to where more people can find it. You can also find me on Facebook at facebook.com slash methodicalpod, and you can find me on Instagram as well. My handle is at methodicalpod, so be sure to check me out. Okay, well, let's jump into today's episode. I grew up going to family reunions. We would go to the Peach family reunion and the Lay family reunion, and sometimes we would go to this thing called Decoration Day at Garrison United Methodist Church, and the format was always the same. My sister and I would sit around while my parents, my grandparents, and my aunts and uncles talked to a bunch of people we didn't know. And the worst part of it was that they would constantly be calling us over to them to introduce us to these people. You know, this is your great Aunt Lois's nephew's brother-in-law, or this is your cousin John's youngest daughter's boyfriend. You know, it was always these people that we had never seen before and we would probably never see again. I remember it just being the longest days ever. We would start off, um, particularly on Decoration Day, We'd start off in the cemetery located on the top of the hill just behind the church, and the pastor would share in a service. There'd be an opening hymn, a word of prayer, there'd be a sermon, and then we would walk down to the church and have yet another service of worship. Piano and organ would blare as the old people who I didn't even know would sing off key. And I think we only sang from the Cokesbury hymnal, but it felt like the longest service ever. And the whole time, all my cousins and my sister and I wanted to do was eat all the food. We wanted to stuff our faces with the fried chicken, mac and cheese, rolls, fruit, banana pudding. But we always had to wait while all the adults were walking around just jabbering away. And honestly, I look back on those memories with nothing but complete fondness. I really, really miss going to that service. I haven't been able to go in in several years because I have 
obviously been a little busy preaching at my own church, but I cannot help but think about Decoration Day at Garrison United Methodist Church when I think about the Love Feast. The origins of the Love Feast are very closely connected to the origins of the Lord's Supper. However, there are some important distinctions between the two. The Lord's Supper, or Communion, which we talked about in Episode 7 of the podcast, is considered to be a sacrament and is practiced universally in the life of the church. The Love Feast, however, is a special meal that only takes place in certain denominations. Although it is not a sacrament, it is certainly viewed as a means of grace. People can trace the love feast all the way back to the early church when it was called the Agape Mill. And some folks trace this back to the early Christian gatherings after Pentecost, where they would meet to break bread together as a symbol of unity and equality. The origins of the Agape Mill are described in Acts chapter 2, 42-47, which says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to one another who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This tradition continued, and over time, this meal morphed into a more modern approach, which is often called the love feast. Most modern historians can trace it back to 1727, when Count Zinzendorf and the Moravian Christians in Germany created the special service where they shared food, prayer, conversation, and hymns. After a particularly memorable celebration of the Holy Communion on August 13, 1727, seven groups from the Moravian Church continued to talk about the great spiritual blessing that they had experienced in having communion, and they did not want to separate and go home to their individual homes and eat these individual meals after church. So Count Zinzendorf, sensing the situation, decided to send them food from his house, and each of the groups shared in that meal together, and they continued in prayer, and they shared in religious conversation, and they sang hymns. This event reminded Zinzendorf of the original Agape meal on the day of Pentecost, and so he had this idea to initiate the ritual of the love feast, which became an important custom in the Moravian church. And the Methodist tradition of the love feast, kind of like the Methodist class meetings, really started with John Wesley in England, who patterned them after this Moravian practice of the love feast. John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist movement, first experienced this service in 1737, ten years after Count Zinzendorf had first initiated this service. And John learned about it when he was exposed to the German Moravians while he was serving as a missionary in Savannah, Georgia. On August 8, 1737, Wesley wrote about the love feast in his journal, saying, After evening prayers, 
we joined with the Germans in one of their love feasts. It was begun and ended with thanksgiving and prayer, and celebrated in so decent and solemn a manner as any Christian of the apostolic age would have allowed to be worthy of Christ. This practice quickly became an important feature in the Methodist societies in both British Methodism and American Methodism. Just a few years later, on January 1st, 1739, New Year's Day, John Wesley again writes in his journal about the love feast, saying, Mr. Hall, Kinchin, Ingham, Whitfield, Hutchinson, and my brother Charles were present at our love feast at Federal Lane with about 60 of our brethren. About three in the morning, as we were continuing instant in prayer, the power of God came mightily upon us, inasmuch that many cried out for exceeding joy, and many fell to the ground. As soon as we were recovered, a little from that awe and amazement at the presence of His Majesty, we broke out with one voice, We praise Thee, O God. We acknowledge Thee to be the Lord. Love feasts were often practiced on Christmas, New Year's, Holy Week, and Pentecost. In fact, the Moravians often lighted wax candles at the Christmas Eve love feast. These candles are usually made of pure beeswax, which symbolizes the purity of Christ. They are also trimmed with red paper, which symbolize the blood of Christ. And these candles are given to each of the worshipers in the darkened church kind of like a Christmas Eve candlelight service that many Methodist churches share in. The light from the candle represents the birth of Christ, which is the light that came into the world. The love feast is often set aside for special occasions. They were often also held during Methodist camp meetings in America. And the love feast was especially important because it could be done when it was not possible to celebrate the Lord's Supper. In early Methodism, This was a constant obstacle because Methodism was a movement that was within the Church of England. So many of the Methodist leaders were not officially ordained by the church. So there was a severe shortage of ordained preachers to bless and administer the sacraments, especially in rural America. So folks would often celebrate with love feasts instead. In addition, the love feast can also be done where there, when there might be folks from other denominations who might not feel comfortable taking Holy Communion in a certain uh, particular church setting. I think during this COVID-19 crisis, um, we actually thought about, uh, considered uh, doing a love feast before our bishop gave us permission to do online communion. And I do want to be clear The love feast is not a substitute for communion, but it certainly embodies some of the same communal aspects. And I think one of the great things about the love feast is that any Christian can host it. It can be done in a church sanctuary or in a fellowship hall, but it can also be done in someone's home. It can include an entire congregation or a small group of just a few people. And I think that that it can make for very intimate and special service for people. So I want to take a minute and go through what all is included in most love feasts as it is outlined in the United Methodist Book of Worship. This service should certainly be done orderly and have a certain flow to it, but I think you'll see that this service also allows quite a bit of room for flexibility as well. The love feast ritual begins with an opening hymn. 
And there are several recommended hymns in the back of the United Methodist Hymnal for the Love Feast. Some of these hymns include All Praise to Our Redeeming Lord, Blessed Be the Dear Uniting Love, Blessed Be the Tie That Binds, Canticle of Love, Christ From Whom All Blessings Flow, Come and Let Us Sweetly Join, Help Us Accept Each Other, Jesus United by Thy Grace, and your love, O oh God, has called us here. I think all of those hymns would work well, but that being said, it may also be appropriate for folks to yell out requests and sing as the Spirit moves. And most importantly, these hymns are used as a way to share in a time of praise and thanksgiving. That's really the overall theme of the love feast. Interestingly enough, Charles Wesley actually wrote a hymn in 1740 entitled The Love Feast. And there were 22 stanzas divided into five parts in the original hymn. 22 stanzas. So today I thought that I could take some time and I could sing all 22 of those for you. No, I'm just kidding. I'm not going to do that. But I am going to read a few lines for, for you today. Come and let us sweetly join Christ to praise in hymns divine. Give we all with one accord Glory to our common Lord. Hands and hearts and voices raise, sing as in the ancient days. And to date, the joys above, celebrate the feast of love. The service then continues with a time of prayer. During this time, one person, or even multiple people, can pray aloud while others respond, saying, Amen, Hallelujah, praise the Lord, or even perhaps, Lord, hear our prayers. This can be a time for spontaneous prayer or for written prayers that are read or even sung. One recommended prayer that that is given is John Sinek's hymn, Be Present at Our Table, Lord, which says, Be present at our table, Lord. Be here and everywhere adored. Thy creatures bless and grant that we may feast in paradise with thee. Another prayer that is recommended is a prayer written by Charles Wesley, especially for the use of the love feast. This is a prayer that both John and Charles recommended using. It says this, Father of earth and heaven, the hungry children feed. Thy grace be to our spirits given, that true immortal bread. Grant us and all our race, and Jesus Christ to prove, the sweetness of thy pardoning grace, the manna of thy love. Then the service continues with Scripture. And Scripture is a very important part of this service. People can read from their Bibles, but people can also spontaneously quote Scripture that comes to their mind as the Spirit moves. There are so many passages of Scripture out there that folks can use, but here are a few that stick out to me. 1 John 4, 7-21, which reminds us that God is love. Matthew 22, 34 through 40, which tells us to love God and to love our neighbor. Luke 9, 12 through 17, which speaks to the abundance of God's love in the story of the feeding of the 5,000. And perhaps my favorite, John 6, 25 through 35, which tells us that Jesus is the bread of life. At this point, there can also be a sermon or an exhortation or some type of an address 
But it really should be an informal thing and add a personal witness that speaks to what the congregation is dealing with or sharing in during that time and during the service. And then, what feast would be complete without food? And honestly, it is discouraged to use communion elements for this meal, so using communion bread or grape juice is not the best, just because this might cause some folks to confuse the Lord's Supper with the love feast. But you can, however, use a loaf of bread, crackers, rolls, or sweet bread. You could even use cinnamon rolls if you wanted to do that. I think that's pretty cool. And this bread can be broken into pieces and then passed around by waiters or stewards while folks break off a piece for themselves. Crackers and rolls can be passed around in a basket while everybody is digging in and sharing in this bread together. At this same time, it would also be appropriate to collect money for the poor as well. And so as the bread is being passed around and the money is being collected, people are also then invited to quote a scripture or a verse. And the leader of the feast can receive the bread last and end with a few concluding words or maybe a prayer or even an invitation to receive God's grace. Then folks can pass around a drink. Traditionally, people use water as a beverage, but other drinks like lemonade and orange juice and tea or my favorite coffee is also acceptable. Early Methodists would actually pass around what they called a loving cup that had two handles. They would pass it around and share in drinking in that cup. Later on, water was served in individual glasses, which I think is probably for the best. But oftentimes you see these drinks being passed around in mugs. And folks are invited to pass around the bread and the drink while the service is going on. And when they do that, they are really required or asked to do it quietly so that the service isn't interrupted. Then the service continues into a time for testimonies, prayers, and singing. And really, testimonies and praise is at the center of the love feast. It is the most focal part of the service. It is a time for people to speak about how they have personally witnessed God's grace working in their lives. And this might even end with a final testimony or a sermon given by whomever is leading the ritual. I came across one testimony that was shared from 1776, where one believer writes this, We held our general love feast. It began between 8 and 9 on Wednesday morning and continued till noon. Many testified that they had redemption in the blood of Jesus, even the forgiveness of sins. And many were enabled to declare that it had cleansed them from all sin. So clear, so full, so strong was their testimony that while some were speaking, their experience, hundreds were in tears, and others vehemently crying to God for pardon or holiness. About eight hour watch night began. Mr. J. preached an excellent sermon. The rest of the preachers exhorted and prayed with divine energy. Surely, for the work wrought on these two days, many will praise God to all eternity. Then after the testimonies, it's a time for a closing hymn. Some of the recommended hymns include, Blessed Be the Dear Uniting Love, Pass It On, and We Are the Church. And finally, the official service concludes with a blessing. But at this point, folks can then share together in a full meal with one another. 
Now, it kind of turns into a potluck. People can bring covered dishes and share in informal conversation, and it continues this same spirit of Christian fellowship, witnessing, and praise that is present in the official service. And one really cool part of that is that if there's any food that's left over, it can actually be taken to people who are not present as an expression of love. I think Dale Patterson, who is from the General Commission on Archives and History, describes the love feast very well. He says, The love feast is when the class or the local church community gets together and shares water and bread. I would take a drink of water, I would give it to you, the next person sitting next to me, and I would say a thank you of some kind. I might say a prayer, I might say a blessing. And I would pass that to you, and then you could take a drink, turn to the next person, pass it to them, share good news with them. It was a way of helping build community. The love feast is relational. It is me sharing with others, with you, how God's grace has been working in my life today. So it's very different in meaning, in tone, in purpose. The love feast helps us share that life which Wesley felt was so important. Christian life needs to be shared. It's a life that I live the Spirit and I share with my friends and family in the community. It's community building. We as Methodists are still famous for our potluck suppers, are we not? Which is also still a way of sharing God's grace and goodness to others. I love this uh, description. And honestly, I can see how this service can still be important for us to participate in even today. I've heard folks talk about how this is actually a great service to have before your church is going to have a meeting or conversation that might be particularly difficult. And you want people to come with their best selves, with open hearts and open minds. This service can help to allow folks to have softer hearts and perhaps even a deeper understanding of their neighbors. The Love Feast is a great service that invites us to live in unity with our sisters and brothers in Christ. And perhaps this is something that the church can reclaim, especially considering all the things that people in churches have been dealing with when it comes to COVID-19. Perhaps in this time we can live and share in the ritual of the Love Feast as we share in unity and equality with one another, even in a time of distancing and uncertainty. The love feast reminds us of the love of God who is working in and around our world, the God who is working in us and through us, and maybe even despite us. And so let us find ways to share in this meal within our communities, within our churches, whether it's virtually or physically, whatever that may look like, let us find ways to share in our own love feasts where we can proclaim the grace that we have received in Christ Jesus and we can share that as a testimony with others. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Methodical Methodist Podcast. If you have enjoyed this show, I hope you might consider heading on over to iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave a review of the show. It is very much appreciated. And until next time, stay methodical.